Hey folks, welcome to Crit Hit Interviews, the podcast where we ask not only our own questions, but also questions from you, the community. If you would like to ask questions to your favorite indie devs, join our Discord community over at discord.me slash crithit. With that out of the way, let's get into things. I'm Arlene, and I'm here today with Tarn Adams. Hey. <laughs> that, that was so amazingly enthusiastic. <laughs> he's the developer of dwarf fortress what is no doubt one of the most systematically complex games around at this point indie or otherwise oh yeah yeah that's correct I, I i mean as far as i know you never know what's lurking out there but but as far as i know we're still uh uh in the the top whatever percentile of complex games and, and continuing to make it more complex yeah, yeah, yeah. We just uh, we just allowed them to reflect on their past memories and change their personalities and and the intellectual values. So if you uh, convict a chicken of a crime, they can become disillusioned with the law permanently, or uh, they can regret having kids because they start to value their free time uh, and so forth. It's kind of uh, I mean there are also positive changes, um, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, I've always wanted to have character arcs in the game, and we're finally getting there. Goddamn. Now I really want to jump to the <laughs> about the recent game thing, but we tend to start all of these off with stuff about the devs themselves, just sort of a bit about you. So I guess to start with the gamer nerdy question, what would your favorite game be? Oh well, I mean it's 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 always it's always hard to do do favorite questions, right? But uh, if we if we take it in terms of the the games that were the most influential uh, coming up, then uh, I mean that would have to be games like like Starflight and Ultima Float Four and Ultima Underworld, those kind of uh, kind of older gnarly games that shaped like my what my brother and I were. Uh, what we were interested in uh, coming up, but I mean, in terms of what I play now, I just mostly play a bunch of console games and stuff because uh, just you know. I was actually going to ask need. you what have you been diving into recently? Yeah, I mean, it's just need to relax, you know. So I mean, I played the Metal Dinosaurs game, and uh, I, I played. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, what what else have I played recently? Um, Jeez, I just, I, I mean, I played the, the two big games on the Switch, but I wasn't really into them that much. Breath of the Wild um, and, and uh, Mario. Uh, okay. I mean, Mario is just kind of like a, a short game itself, and then you're supposed to go on this 500 thing scavenger hunt or something, and I just like, ah, nah. just kind of tired of that. And then Breath of the Wild, I mean, I'm on the, uh, I'm on the don't like damaging your weapons camp or whatever. I basically treated that game like a stealth game where you climb things and don't fight anything um it's just i didn't i just couldn't get into the whole like uh i need to be saving four weapons for a boss fight and so i can't actually fight anything or whatever and i don't know if i will have enough diamonds to repair the sword if it breaks or whatever and it just yeah i didn't like thinking about that when i was playing uh but i mean it was fun climbing mountains and stuff uh so yeah, that was all right. Um, and I'm sure there have been, there have been a bunch of other things. Uh, 
I went back and I uh, was playing some of the, the spiderweb software re- reissues for those, uh, those like a Vernum role-playing game thing. Um, he just put out the third one. Uh, and, um, yeah, you know, every, every nine months or so you have to launch the rocket and Factorio, that kind of thing. So it's been all over the place, kind of. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, again, we mentioned that, like, Dwarf Fortress is extremely complex. What actually got you into game development? Oh, well, I mean, I, I was kind of, uh, raised into it uh my 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 father taught me basic when i was like five or six it's hard to remember right my first memories are writing code or watching uh video games like these old kind of like uh like a commodore 64 trs 80 type basic games where the little the little uh critter dances around or they're like um interactive fiction games uh, i remember vaguely uh just just it's always been there and uh but not just the playing but the writing of them right like making a little thing move across the screen like the first thing my brother and i did were like these weird sort of demo like if if the <laughs> like the demo scene for ascii moving around <laughs> it's like not not incredibly interesting but we made little people walk around and get killed by hazards and um and we had a game where you raised a little pet rat and fed it food and so forth and uh, lots of weird arena games and explore the city games and uh, just just lots of things like that. And then um, yeah, we, we eventually, because of the games we were playing, like uh, I mentioned Starflight and Ultima, things like that, we wanted kind of these maps. We like maps, making maps. And uh, so we started kind of making this this sort of procedural fantasy maps around the time when I was like 13 years old, I picked up a C, which made it a little more possible. Uh, it was harder in basic, at least with the compilers at the time, to sort of have enough memory and so forth, or at least we didn't know how to do it. Um, but then I started making maps, right? Uh, altitude and, and you know, whether or not there are forests and that kind of thing, dotting cities around and making ogres run around and, you know, break buildings and stack skulls in front of their caves and stuff. That was kind of like high school for me. <laughs> so I'm going to take it it was something you sort of always wanted to do then oh yeah yeah I mean it's 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 hard to even think about it as a as a motivation or a goal or a dream or anything like that it's 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 more like you know I enjoy you know say reading books or watching movies or whatever I mean making making games is almost like media consumption for me in a way or whatever it's just this thing that happens during time that was free and then it sort of became also a job or something now i mean it's like uh it's hard to distinguish or you know otherwise try and find its its place in my life in that way so in the end what sort of skills has game development required to you you to use and where did you develop Oh, a lot of practice, really. I mean, it's like the uh, there's organization. You need to be able to organize your notes and things. I mean, they talk a lot about spreadsheets in in kind of more traditional development context. I don't have any stre- spreadsheets, which might surprise some people, but uh, um, so it wasn't Excel or anything that that was uh, kind of the main skill I learned. But I did learn how to organize uh, a lot of text notes and paper tablets and and so forth. Um, 
there's also uh, the, the math skills uh, happen to come in handy. And I learned that the formal way. That was kind of like my, uh, my career before becoming a full-time game developer was a, being a mathematician. And so the necessary or kind of, I mean, necessary is a strong word, but it really helps the linear algebra, for instance, right? Uh, when you're doing game development, uh, when you have little matrices moving around and, you know, the occasional differential equation, if you're trying to, um, you know, model like an arrow in a windstorm and you want to know where it's going to hit and stuff, you can occasionally cheat, take shortcuts and so forth if you know enough math. And, um, you know, knowing, knowing probability combinatoric stuff also comes in handy when you're setting up different chances. You just do things a little bit faster. And so I found that a lot of the, uh, I'm able to develop quite a bit fa faster than I would, would be able to because I have like just kind of the math is sitting in my, uh, my toolbox. Um, and then, you know, uh, things like music and art haven't been so big <laughs> for us. Uh, those would be, you know, handy, I suppose. Um, although we have kind of like chosen to make a text game just because it's faster uh, to develop and you don't have to kind of coordinate assets and that kind of thing. And we just have the one looping four minute soundtrack, which um, I guess, you know, some people leave on and some people turn off, which is uh, you know perfectly fine. But uh, that's as far as we ever got when it came to like audio or anything like that. So I didn't learn those things. And then there's the whole kind of programming side of it. You know, you develop skills in terms of like, uh, if you don't think of Dwarf Fortress as a particularly optimized game because of how slow it is, because there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, complex systems moving about. Um, but I have picked up quite a bit of um, skills in terms of, uh, you know, getting things to, to move faster. Um, architecture of programs and so forth. I never learned any of that formally. I just learned it all kind of on the job, so to speak. And uh, I don't know how I rate there. I mean, I, I imagine I'm uh, very good at it in terms of what you get out of just practicing and banging your head against the wall, but there are certain formalisms and um, large holes in my programming education that I'm, I'm sure would be, um, you know, helped by, by some kind of more formal education or even a more formal sort of experience as being a triple A person or something like that. Like if I had had a job for a while um, in the, in the larger industry, I'm sure there'd, there'd be things I know that would help a lot, but I, you know, I do have a lot of um, like learning from peers. Yeah, exactly. And learning not just from peers, but from like institutional experience, right. Uh, there are just certain ways to handle like how your version control system works or how, um, how to, to best, um, you know, fill in a, a, a blob of territory, um, a little more quickly than maybe I'm doing it or something like that. There's, there's, uh, there's lots of little, little, little tricks that you, that come from having a, a society <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, mentorships and, and on the job training, that kind of thing, uh, that, you know, I really don't know what my holes are, but we're, you know, the beast is trundling along as it were. So I, I feel pretty good. So with those intro questions, we can now dive right into the nitty gritty of Dwarf Fortress and <laughs> what it is. And in that respect, how exactly did the idea for Dwarf Fortress come to be? Yeah, there's kind of this two-track um, sort of evolution of it, because my brother and I have always been working on, by always in age 10 or whatever, working on some kind of fantasy game, right? We're like, you know, we like the role-playing games and we like the books and that kind of thing. So we're like, okay, we're going to make this sort of random um, uh role-playing game it was always it was usually not I mean, nothing to do really with with like a community management or a fortress of of people running around 
you know, getting drunk and causing trouble. It was more just like, you know, here's a one character role playing game. And uh, we had that going. It started with a game called Drag Slay, which is kind of like the eight characters you were restricted to back on the old operating systems for Dragon Slayer, because there were dragons that had special abilities that you would you would fight or whatever. But that kind of grew into just its own larger game, and then we started calling that um, Slaves to Armok, God of Blood, because we were being silly or whatever. And um, that was tremendously the, the... edgy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like even the title screen bled and you could cut it with the mouse and all that that was all like 18 years ago or whatever right just like there's a lot of bleeding title screens now but we were pretty early into the whole like interactive title screen cutting it with your mouse uh, uh thing right <laughs> yeah that's all like yeah it's just it's it's too stupid to be edgy or something like that it's just milk toast right but it was uh you know this 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 game where you you'd generate this world and you could walk around you had they had 3d models the uh, the last iteration of it they were terrible but you could kind of define the animations for them and say like oh i want to walk on my hands or whatever and it would come up with this really bad procedural animation for that and um you'd walk around like hunting rabbits with a bow and i don't remember too much of else of what we did uh but there wasn't anything to it because we felt like we had to sort of build it from the bottom up uh maybe you know define how curly the hair was on your arm before we uh, made a town, right, or something like that. It was just terrible uh, because of some some uh, you know earlier problems we had had with the the code not being extensible enough, and we're like, oh, we need to start from the bottom up because we, we were just kind of learning how to do architecture on programs on the fly, and it was just you know always a mess. And so we had this other side project starting up around the same time uh, of the of that, like in the middle of that project, like 2002 or so and Slaves to Armok ran from kind of 2000 to 2004 or five. Um, and so there was a side project we were working on because we had, we had, you know, we had put on, so we set up the web page in 2000 and kind of had these um, side projects going like uh, World War One Medic and Liberal Crime Squad are kind of the, the two that, that, you know, maybe anybody has played. And uh, so we we're going to start a new one called Mutant Miner. And it was just going to be like, hey, you go around um, in this cliff face and you mine up these, these sort of, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle mutagen canisters to grow more arms so that you can mine faster, right? Or whatever. That's kind of the core game loop. And then uh, we were like, oh, we need more miners or whatever. It'd be cool to have kind of a system where you had a bunch of miners. But we uh, didn't have a good turn-based system for that. You just kept flipping between the miners. It was like the, the worst sort of interface you can imagine for just like, now I'm controlling this one, now I'm controlling this one or whatever. And we were like, okay, so the game needs to be real-time. And then you have a bunch of real-time miners walking around, you know, mining in this this cliff face. And as we were thinking about, you know, what kind of homes we wanted them to have and so forth, um, you know, my brother and I were just like, eventually got into this thing, just in this sort of three-day feverish phone call where we're like, okay, this is actually going to be this real-time sort of dwarf arcade game. There's going to be these uh, these miners mining into the cliff face and then, after your fortress, you know, once you're into dwarves, you get into the whole digging too deep thing and you eventually lose the game, right? And um, we're like, then you'll bring into this adventure and this little mini roguelike where you go and explore this fortress that you had dug out and you kind of collect points for like finding journals that the dwarves had made and bringing out their best artifacts. And so the, the dwarf mode was to set the maximum score and then the adventure mode that you'd go in and play would say like how many of those points that you actually got. And then they would put you in a score list. It was going to be a two-month project, and we were just going to release it and then go back to Armok or whatever, right? 
And um, it didn't work out that way. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Dwarf Fortress was like a giant black hole, right? Just sucking all of the features from Armok into itself because it was so fast to add features to the text game. We weren't like worrying about 3D models or modeling a 3D landscape anymore. And uh, it just kind of got sort of, um, you know, uh, addictive is not the word I'm looking for, but it was um, enthralling. Yeah, engrossing. To kind of um, get caught up in that, right? Uh, <laughs> to, uh, to be able to add and see and, and make the game better and better and better. And um, we worked on that for four years on and off and released the first version in 2006. So you mentioned this already a little bit with the digging too deep alongside the doors, but have there been any games or literature which helped you develop Dwarf Fortress? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, uh, the different inspirations, I mean, obviously there's the whole sort of the Tolkien uh, Lord of the Rings slash sort of Silmarillion branch of, uh, <laughs> of literature and sort of the, uh, I guess things like the romance of the three kingdoms plays into it. Just these, these large, like uh, multi, multi character, many character, hundred character stories um, uh, that we were, we were kind of interested in. Uh, and um, I, that was really like the, uh, the, the principal motivation came from that. And then there are just other nods to various pieces of our life. Like there's things taken from the, uh, the, the writings of the Assyrian kings and some of the things, because my, my brother studied that stuff in college. And uh, um, we have, uh, you know, other other bits and pieces. Obviously, there's a lot of roguelike inspirations in there. And we use a lot of their symbols, like the ampersand for demons and um, the at sign for the, the adventurer. Um, all, all comes from that tradition. And then we just, you know, heavily borrow from, from those traditions. And then there's just a lot of things about our interests. Like we have... Uh, some hundreds of real-world animals in the game, and that just came from you know interest in, in zoology, um, and uh, same thing with all the the gemstones and geology in the game. Just ha happened to be a side interest that kind of worked its way in. It was kind of like the the one of the kind of key uh, principles, I guess, behind the development of Dwarf Fortress is that there's really no limitation to the kind of inspirations you're allowed to bring into game development. And that it doesn't just have to be other games or, or traditional media, but really entire branches of inquiry can be uh, modeled and systematized and placed into a video game. Is there any other bits of, I guess, learning that you're intending on incorporating into the game? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's uh, any manner of things. I mean, the, 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 it's going to be interesting... Uh, the next two big pushes, for instance, there's the sort of myth and magic release. And we're just going to be kind of, I, I mean, I suppose cannibalizing a lot of real world religious systems and also um, fantasy world building that other people have done to kind of say like, you know, what are the sort of irreducible components that make up these things? And then how can we put them in a jar and shake them together and build connections to create kind of uh, generate magic systems and generate uh, creation myths? and so forth 
uh, and there's there's a lot of learning that that goes on in that process. I mean, people kind of make fun of us and say that our design document is Wikipedia or something, but it's not it's not too far off uh, how how the process works. And then after that, there's a kind of an interesting like uh, we're thinking of of doing sort of um, modeling customs and law and property and um, you know different different uh, sort of government systems and so forth and. Uh, there's a lot we don't know about that, right? And a lot of deeper questions about how people relate to their customs and what it means to owe something, what it means for a person to have power over another person, right? Like, where does the power derive from and who exercises it? What are the limits on it um, that are going to have to be systematized and kind of understood even by the characters in the game to some extent? And we haven't done, you know, the heavy reading on that and and there's going to be, you know, quite a bit of ongoing learning uh, seems to be the theme. Um, that, I feel like that, this is going to lead down a rabbit hole of a lot of Kafka. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, <laughs> yes. What is it? A uh, an enormous quite what he wakes up as, but it's uh, an enormous cockroach. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, yeah. That that'll probably happen in the myth release before we even get to the bureaucracy. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's really, uh, it's really, um, it's a fascinating ride anyway. Uh, there's also in like alchemy was, uh, is a thing I do believe at least in like fledgling states is they're going to be for like what it is. Is it going to be pulling more from like, the real world roots, the sort of mythological roots, or a combination of the two. So I imagine what's going to happen there. We have kind of a thing, a previous yeah. alchemy that we didn't do anything with, and then we just turned it into a soap making shop. And you basically have get get tallow and 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 use lye and make make soaps. Um, but you know, alchemy is, of course, a big thing in the in the first myth release is going to include some things along those lines. And what what we generally do is like um, if, if we try to take real world mythological systems and religions and things like that, it's like it's like Christ and Buddha are not making their appearance in the game. That's just not going to happen unless someone wants to mod them in or whatever. But the uh, but also things like like we, we avoided calling things a Brazil nut in the game and called it a paradise nut instead. Um, and we just generally, it's not always possible, but we try and kind of avoid um, real world uh, names and symbols. So, so having like alchemy that, that, that came as a kind of the sort of a cult or whatever, right? Those, those sort of things just wouldn't go into the game in that form. Like you wouldn't like, um, have whatever i don't i don't know much about it but you wouldn't be be like assigning them to the same sort of like uh, astrological symbols or whatever because those those stars wouldn't exist right but at the same time all of the actual chemistry in terms of like this is how you make you know uh, sulfuric acid or whatever as long as it falls within within our our year 1400 cutoff is kind of how we work with technologies and that's all like to us that that kind of thing is valid. And when we do things with with lye, for instance, I mean, we're we're working with uh, and quicklime and things like that. We're working within a system of uh, of um, you know we're trying not to be too technical about it. So instead of calling it like um, 
nitric acid would be called spirit of nitre or whatever, right? And and sulfuric acid is called like um, oil of vitriol, I think, something like that. Yeah, oil of uh, vitriol is its old school name. Yeah, so those those things those things would go in as well as whatever appropriate production methods there are, and we would just try and sort of systematize like okay these are the the uh, the these are acids these are bases you'll get salts from these and so forth, you know to whatever extent. But then with the myth and the and the magic system generator, there would be alchemies built procedurally right on top of the world, so that if in a certain world the um, say um, uh, jade is associated to a, uh, a a god of rivers that um, you know had had a a terrible run in with a bear or something like that, right? Then maybe jade would have uh, kind of an effect on bears or something, right? There'd be this sort of conceptual linkage that it can come up with in the stories that it creates just by bouncing the bits and bobs around, um, making a, a little story then the conceptual links of the different verbs and nouns in that story can be used to form uh, alchemical properties and not just alchemy, but just magic systems in general, right? It's like if the dwarves in one universe were forged um, on, an, on an anvil, then uh, they, they might have certain sort of inherent powers, whereas if they were smoothed as stones in a river in a different story, then your dwarves might even have more of a watery aspect to them in their procedural magic system and it can it's all it's all pretty simple in the sense that you know this is water this is this or whatever but um as you know as a world building exercise it it does about you know as well as a bad author which is all we can hope for right we're just kind of to, trying to replicate you know cheap crappy fantasy writing and you know let the let the professionals do their thing it just sounds like with more and more things that can all have their own unique permutations just the interactions are going to lead to eventually someone is going to make like pies that explicitly attract bears to the pie and then enrage them it's yeah the yeah exactly it's gonna there's there's gonna be a, a kind of like like we never intentionally lean into the zaniness like Dwarf Fortress is sometimes seen as a zany game, but we try our best not to make it zany because the zaniness is going to happen on its own, right? It's like, <laughs> on that note, it's, yeah. <laughs> on that note, do you have a favorite Dwarf Fortress story? Oh no, I mean that's it's so hard. There's so many. Give you know, me like picking favorites. One. That's... I mean, my, 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 I mean, the problem is when people ask me about the favorite stories, I always come back to the, the same damn stories, right? About, they're always bugs, you know, like my, 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 uh, my early favorite is, is the hammerer bug, um, which I, yeah, I don't remember if you bumped into that or not, but, uh, where the, the hammerer, who's the executioner in the fortress, um, was injured and unable to pick up his hammer, uh, to, to hammer one of the prisoners. Uh, but he still did an attack, and so he started biting the prisoner uh, because his arms were injured, and he just felt that he had to, to perform his duties. And so he bit the guy's arm off and then carried it around in his mouth for years. And that was the bug report. Is like, my executioner has someone's arm in his mouth. Um, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was amusing. But then we got, we got to the whole cat thing with the, the cats the all dying in the bar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those, 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 I mean, all my, my, so my favorite stories are all like these bug reports, right? Um, when it comes to like people sort of 
you know, heroic and interesting stories and all the stories of playthroughs on the forums and stuff. Um, I don't, I don't remember them as well. Uh, Cause they're not, they're not, I mean, they're, they're, they're all, they all sort of run together at some point. Um, but yeah. So yes, my, my apologies for not having a concise answer. No worries at all. So what do you feel is the most important part of Dwarf Fortress's identity? <sighs> yeah. It, I mean, identity as, as a kind of game or tool is just the, uh, the ability to uh, create complex narratives um, or have the basically an assistant for a player to create and then share those narratives with other people, I think is the, um, the sort of the, the, the core defining feature. But I mean, a lot of games have that property um, to different degrees and in different, different directions. Um, so, I mean, the, the, you know, some of the, the things that were earlier identifying features are just, you know, dwarves acting <laughs> irrationally and being killed by elephants and carp, right. was, uh, was a, uh, you know, quite an important, uh, defining feature, but I think that's, that's kind of become less true now. And, um, people just think of it more as sort of a storytelling aid. Uh, or a, or a, a, almost like a lot of the people that interact with the game now just read stories online um, and don't play the game at all. And, you know, we consider that part of our community, right? That's, that's part of, and, and those including the people that support us online will, you know, a lot of them don't play the game. It's just part of the experience of, of being, you know, a part of the community is to see the kind of strange things that have happened without, you know, necessarily having to put in the, the time with what is a very sort of, you know, non-intuitive, clunky, and time-consuming interface to kind of squeeze the jelly <laughs> out of the game that is you know, a story, which is like this, the, the worst uh, metaphor I've come up with in a long time. But uh, it, it's it's like there's there's kind of different different tiers. I uh, don't want to rank them or anything, but different groups of uh, of community members and people that play more casually, but, um, and then people that build computers inside of the game, right? Like the, there's a functioning calculator that has however many digits it can multiply two, three digit numbers together and has a, uh, a, one of those seven segment displays run with drawbridges. So you can actually see the numbers, but the, the, the computer runs with, you know, I don't know how many parts, 80,000 parts or whatever they built it up over a, a long period Christ. of time. Yeah, no, they're amazing, and they made they made a a run space invaders that a dwarf can play with levers. You you order your dwarf which levers to pull, and it plays space invaders in real time. Uh, and I I don't know how, how those computers were operated because you can operate a computer by running water through uh, floodgates and pressure plates and stuff to do the logic. Um, and I guess there were real water computers in the past, right? And uh, they also have animal-powered computers that, that run on pressure plates. And then there's also vampire-powered computers that you can run by having dwarf, uh, vampire dwarves pull levers. And you just lock them inside the machine because they don't need to eat. And they just get, I guess, grumpy when they haven't had blood to drink. But, you know, that's their problem. But they'll still follow, follow orders. And so you can set them on either patrol patterns to walk on pressure plates or you can tell them to pull a lever or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, 
an amazing world people have created uh, out there. And we had no expectation that that would happen, right? I mean, my, my brother and I are, neither of us are really computer minded, right? It's like I've been, I've been programming as a, as, a, uh, as a practical measure to get the game built, but I don't know anything about like assembly language or logic gates or anything like that. But that doesn't mean other people don't know. And as long as the system is, you know, turning complete or whatever, they can do whatever they want um, and do. On that note, actually, so what was the biggest challenge in actually developing the engine for Dwarf Fortress? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for me, it's just getting Windows to work or whatever at first, right? I mean, those message loops and all that kind of thing. And I actually had a big problem with one of my old games, uh, like developing an error over time because I wasn't operating the message pump properly because I had kind of half learned it from books and demos and, you know, didn't really know what the pitfalls were. And, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, we've just been building it up slowly over time. I mean, I, I think it's, it's fair to say the twin challenges that are kind of, you know, have, have caused trouble for Dwarf Workers are the, the interface programming and the speed of the game. Like, as you make the game more complex, you have to optimize more and make decisions about how much stuff you want to put in the game. And we always kind of err in the, in the sense of error being an error. We always err on the side of making the game a little more complex than it probably you know, could be, um, in terms of, you know, speed being, you know, staying up at this many frames per second or whatever has, has been, a, you know, a, a struggle. Uh, but in terms of like the, the, the conceptual side of, of things, um, uh, there's not, there's not a whole lot of problems because we kind of, um, you know, you, if you plan things out ahead of time, you just know what's going to be super impossible, right? It's like time travel. Uh, there are some, some kind of cool time travel games that have a limited scope, right? Like you can rewind your platformer or there was that neat um, RTS that had like the different time waves or whatever. Mm. I can never remember the name of it because it was, it was just, it begins with A, I think, and it's like um, some some sci-fi word, right? So <laughs> how am I supposed to remember? Um, if you look up time travel RTS, you'll find it. Uh, and it had this cool kind of time wave mechanic. So you had to fight in different times. And uh, I don't even remember how you win the game or whatever. But um, So for us, you know, time travel, there's just too much data to really do it reliably. We could do a few little gimmicky things, but it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't feel right. And uh, so we just kind of, you know, didn't do that. Uh, and um, there, I imagine, we'll, we'll run into other trouble along those lines. Like, uh, you know, if you want to make like a, a mirror plane uh, that's like a shadow world that that is alongside the other world, but it has significant differences in terrain or geography, then, then you just double the memory and you're in a lot of trouble, right? But we can do things like a shadow plane that has the same terrain because then you don't run into a memory problem. So there's a whole lot of um, technical constraints that drive what is added to the game. And, um, you know, you kind of run into those as you go along. So what has been the most interesting emergent properties of Dwarf Fortress you've encountered while developing the game? Huh. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's a... Uh, <laughs> That's a, that's a, that's a very difficult question. Um, uh, so as, as you can probably tell over the course of the interview, I don't categorize things by top. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult for me to come up with favorites. I, I, 
So it's like, I'm, I'm just trying to think about like, well, what was something recently interesting that's happened in terms of, uh, in terms of that. And it's a lot of this, this kind of, um, contaminants and poisons on the ground has been very interesting because it's not just the cats that walked through the booze and cleaned themselves and got sick, right? There's a, there's a ongoing interesting problems of like these big beasts that come from underground, the forgotten beasts often have like dust that they scatter or slime that they leave on the ground that the dwarves then track on their feet. And if you're, if you haven't been giving your shoes uh, to your dwarves properly, then you might notice that their feet are getting blisters or that their feet are rotting off entirely because they've been walking through this kind of sludge that you can't really control or whatever. And so there's this sort of spatial component to the control, right? That, that you want to be able to shut off entire areas and so forth. And that gets way too fiddly. And so you have to kind of um, worry about that. And then we haven't quite gotten into like more conceptual pollution yet although we we are starting that now like you could read a book now that changes your mind about your values so you could you could think for instance that war and peace um you know you might you might side more with like well war war is a great thing or whatever or peace is more preferable it's very simple right now right they don't think too much about self-defense or just cause or any of the middle ground but they just kind of think good bad on a sliding scale and uh you know whatever that sliding scale means but it's the sort of thing that can actually change the world like if you if you went around in adventure mode um as an adventurer leaving books of peace out for people to read and they somehow read them which is the hard part uh to get them to read which is why you more have to like argue it um because you can do that in conversations and you can actually change the world if you convinced every demon emperor of the goblins that peace was a good thing they would actually stop fighting people um and it's too easy to convince them right now, especially when they're demons and maybe should be more hard, hardwired for that sort of thinking rather than just having any adventure be able to walk by and, you know, like, hey, you should stop killing people. They're like, oh, you're right. Um, and uh, I mean, it's I mean, pretty it's, cool if there's occasionally one who'd be like, yeah, sure, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's and, and interesting. You know, the whole thing where, where um, you know, all of your biases and all that are, are kind of baked into your systems, right? Um, so for us, it's like when we have a procedural demon generator and we needed to decide, you know, which personality facets of demons are immutable and which ones are sliding, right? So we have, um, and I'm, I'm vaguely trying to remember this, but I wouldn't quote myself on any of it, which is like gluttony, for instance, is, is, is one of the... Um, or intemperance, I think we call it, or whatever, is one of the sliders for personalities, and it goes from, like, um, you know, zero to 100 or whatever. And so we decided that demons should probably be able to slide on that scale. It's like not all demons want to go out and, like, drink and eat a bunch of cake or whatever, but some of them, that's, like, their defining characteristic, right? Is their, Which makes their love sense, because of... yeah, demons, they're... seven deadly sins, yada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, because part of our personality system derived from actually Thomas and stuff, because uh, the uh, the the sort of um, ocean like thirty facet psychological models and stuff are not nearly judgmental enough to make a you know narrative fiction, right? <laughs> so we threw in some some more traditional uh, you know uh, shots at people uh, criticizing and judging them. Uh, and for instance, so yeah, the intemperate demon. But then we were thinking about um, what about empathy? Uh, and um, I, I believe I mean, this is just an example. 
correct or not, but that would be one that, for instance, we just set to zero. It's like, no, the, the demons aren't sitting there thinking about your feelings. Um, and, uh, you know, well, at the same time, maybe you're like, well, maybe they highly swayed by emotional appeals and so forth. But, um, you know, should they be cruel? Should they be merciful? Should a demon be able to be impartial but not cruel when it's doing things right? So there's there's just a whole lot of world building that's kind of implicit in these these just these little um, flips of the coin that go on in the random generator that have, that have you know they reverberate through your entire game and define how people think of the game and how people think of demons and think of goblin society and think of all of everything when you allow um, those 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 decisions to have an impact on the game. And define more and more impacts as you like code up little little mechanisms here and there, and um, yeah, just kind of go through on a case by case basis. And good enough is good enough, right? There is a lot of imperfect me mechanics in the game because you just get tired of staring at a list. Like I, when I just added those um, those long term memories, being able to change into values and personality changes there are something like 240 possible memory types and then i'd have to go through the you know 130 or whatever emotion and 30 or whatever value systems and and say like which which possible combinations of these work with all these things and that's you know something like 40,000 combinations or whatever at the barest minimum to check and I'm like, I'm not going to check that. <laughs> so it's like, uh, it's the sort of thing where you're like, but you don't want to sort of um, crowdsource something so important either, or maybe you do and you just have to check the work or whatever, right? To make sure that, that like, um, it's, not, it's not getting too loose or, or too restrictive on what sort of personality changes there can be. It's like, I have people, like, they, they have a memory of when they didn't have clothes and they felt mortified because the player just didn't provide them with clothes and their clothes rotted off their bodies or whatever. It's supposed to be a bad memory that causes stress in the fortress, but we didn't want it to cause stress forever. So after a couple of years, they can look back on that memory and they can feel right now, just because I have limited time, they can feel one of two things. <laughs> they can feel, um, they can change that mortification into amusement and then they, they can become possibly more shameless they can become more zany and they can also care about decorum less, right? As an intellectual value. That's one transition that can cause like, that's like a, it's not the most dramatic character arc, but it's a character arc, right? Um, that's something that can happen to them. But on the other hand, they could turn that mortification into just a general feeling of disquiet or uneasiness. That's not as stressful. It's like, if you think back on embarrassing moments in your life, they're not all like, it's not all like you're just laughing them off. Sometimes you just like have a tick of your head and you're like, ah, or whatever. Right. <laughs> it's just like, that was something that happened 15 years ago. That was bad. <laughs> and, um, you know, that could change your personality a little bit in another way. Right. It's like, you know, maybe I'll be a little more cautious now, you know, that dwarf becomes a little more cautious or that dwarf becomes a little disillusioned with society that let that happen to them or whatever, or maybe that dwarf becomes more empathetic. Right. Um, you know, they, you know, that they, they, they won't laugh at somebody, now that they see who's naked or whatever, right? It's like, um, there's little things that we just, you know, I put in as many as I could do in the time I set aside for it and called it good enough and moved on to the next thing. So, in regards to features, uh, are there any that you'd like to implement, but which have asked so far been problematic to do so? 
Yeah, I mean, I mentioned time travel, right? That's that's kind of the big one that's sitting there. Uh, other ones are comics, right? Like the thing that, like, like imagine all those falling sand type games, right? The oil floats on the water, the sand th- sinks through the water and and lies on the bottom, right? And we'd love to have more fluids, right? Now, the only fluids we have in the game are there's the liquid ones, there's water and magma, and then there's all the gases, and gases are pretty easy to deal with. And uh, gases right now in the game can be any type of material. But the fluids, the liquid fluids, can only be water and magma. We'd like to have uh, sand that acts more like a liquid. We'd like to have oil that can float on top of the water. Uh, We'd like to do, like, scary places where there's, like, lakes of blood and that kind of thing. Right now we can have, it can rain blood, in scary places and the blood can kind of pool on the ground but it can never get so deep that it actually flows it can like stick to the bottom of your shoes but it can't you can't drown in it or anything and it can't like flow down a corridor uh and and there's just a lot of problems with mixing fluids which fluids are mixable or miscible or whatever fluids and which fluids float on other fluids it just starts to get to be a nightmare of cpu and memory and stuff like that right and we're, we're, but unlike time travel, we're still vaguely optimistic that we can um, pick something up there, like make some ground there, even if it's not perfect. And um, similarly, we have things like lighting. We haven't just gotten, we have just haven't gotten into lighting at all in the game. Like, it's a big question, right? Should dwarves be able to see in the dark, or should they have like a bunch of gem lights or some weird magical thing, or should fungal, they be, yeah. Lights. Yeah, yeah. or should they be walking around with candles, right, or something like that, right? And, um, you know, and, and there are humans in the game, and humans, you know, probably just walk around with candles. Uh, but right now they don't have to. Um, or, or it actually does get dark, and they would like to, but they don't have those choices available. But it's difficult, right? I mean, even, even in a text graphics game, saying, like, how much light is there from these X amount of light sources and stuff, can just get to be a pain when people are running around. It's just, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's funny when, when people talk about like, oh, you know, movable light sources, we have graphics cards to deal with that, blah, blah, blah. We can have X number of movable light sources and this ambient light and this scattering light and all these other tricks and stuff. Whereas with me, I, I just have to figure out how it works on a grid. Um, but it's, it's still, you know, is it too much, right? It's like the weather system we put in ended up being too much for what we got out of it because we've got, you know, hot and cold air masses bumping into each other. They can make warm fronts and cold fronts, and it'll make serious clouds properly form 24 hours before a warm front rolls in and all that kind of stuff. But it's like in the game, in fort mode especially, uh, where you can't even look at the sky, it's just like it is raining. It is now clear out. Oh, now it's raining again or whatever, but it's actually the rain is coming from this complicated system. But it's just not, it just wasn't worth it. Sort of awesome. Uh, although, also, by the way, if you made, like, fungal light, I'd probably feel compelled to, like, grow it on the dwarves' clothes somehow. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, yeah, you should be playing uh, Caves of Cud is what you should be doing. Um, you've got fungal infections that grow on your body, and they've been working on that game for 10 years. It's like the, uh, the, the Gamma World cousin of Dwarf Fortress. Um, yeah, well, that game's cool. Very complex. So, we, we, 
what is one of the unintended, I'd say consequence, but it's less for bug and more of unintended features that have cropped up as you've updated the game? Yeah, I'm sure this question has an answer. Um, <laughs> there are things that we have adopted that, that players have done um, that we've then, we've then run with, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to call any to mind. Da, 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 da. I'm helping your editor out a lot. This is going to be a big dead space. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. What is a thing? Um, yeah, I'm thinking, trying to think of what's a what thing where I mean, and if you don't count like water computers or whatever, ah, geez, what else happens? Um, I mean, particle smashers. Yeah, it's like I mean, it's 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 it's, it's like if you it, it, being able to stack like as many items as you want in a square was like a known problem we had, right? I mean, it's 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 something we'd like to fix. But um, it's hard to fix, right? <laughs> it's like we'd like to add some. I mean, essentially, you need to have like the the pile of items eventually turn into a whole tile, just called like a mass of crap or whatever. And you could make piles of dragon hordes that way that actually form multiple Z levels or something like that. You could slide down a down a mountain of skulls or something like that. Um, but without that, then you just stack everything in the same square. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, so then players would exploit that. Um, and I'm not sure if that's an intended feature though, cause we'd like to get rid of, um, all of the uses of vampires, I think were, we didn't think of a lot of that in advance, especially when they, when they started, like you, like in this game, the, the way it works right now is you can become a vampire if you drink another vampire's blood. And so what, what players actually did was to take the a bl a blood from a vampire and somehow get it in their well so that all of the dwarves that drink out of that well would become vampires. And then you can segregate the society based on vampires and non-vampires and someone set up a exterior fortress that had just vampires in it for defensive purposes and then the interior fortress which was non-vampires so the exterior fortress couldn't feed on their interior um, but was still set to guard and so forth and, and drain and murder everything that showed up yeah yeah and because because uh, vampire soldiers are much stronger and more agile than than um, regular dwarves and they don't need to sleep or, or eat or drink. Uh, I mean, they also, like they like to drink. Can't you <laughs> like also to drink make uh, them undead? Like you can be like a necromancer vampire. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, I don't know if you can be a necromancer or vampire. I, I think Might you can be, be both. Can you I do think that? you have to both? do it in a certain order, though. Ah, ah, that would make that I, would make I think sense. It's, you have to. You have to be a vampire first and then get the necromancer tome and it's just easier because you're already <laughs> undead so all the undead on the way to like the necromancer tome are like oh that's right they don't care the, yeah, yeah. the zombies just look at you uh <laughs> and then yeah and i think necromancers don't have stat atrophy yeah so i think i think what you're yeah i mean you're probably better at listing an 
none of that was really stuff we thought of. Um, and in fact, the, the way that like, I, I think the vampire and the werewolf curse interact was something that we only put in afterward in terms of one, not being able to turn into the other. If we even did that, like I can't even remember anymore. Right. There's just too much, uh, too much data for me to remember. Um, sometimes <laughs> what's, uh, what all is, what all is going on there. Um, and there were other cool things like with the way that the sewer systems emptied, emptied into the river. Like we weren't expecting hippos to be like going into the sewers and like creating urban legends down there or whatever, but they, they do that. Um, it's very weird to see the hippos in the sewers. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, imagine any, any number of other things, uh, like the, uh, the, when we taught people how to climb and the, the seizures suddenly were able to like hop over walls and stuff. And we had thought of that, but just seeing them always find like the little, the little, um, the little vulnerability in your fortress that the player didn't spot. And then like, you know, a player may be at first thinking that the people had cheated and then they discover, no, there's actually this little way into my fortress now or whatever. Um, I mean, all that's really cool. So, with all this said, and with, uh, you mentioned the next updates were the sort of myth and magic one and the politics one, will development ever end or do you have more planned beyond that? Oh, we got plenty. Yeah, no, we've got, uh, we've got, we've got plenty, plenty, plenty to do beyond that because once the, the property law customs, whatever release is done, then we have different directions we can go, right? Like we really want to do boats right because boats are cool multi-tile boats that you can sail around and stuff uh and also that can arrive to like if you put your fortress in a, like a sea cave and then like boats could sail in and trade with you in some giant you know grotto place underground or whatever and then Pirate sail cave. out yeah i mean it'd be really cool and um and then uh but also that that leads to like uh, you know, one of the reasons we were thinking of doing boats first is because so much of a regular economy is based on uh uh, water transport, right? Whether that's rivers or oceans. And we just kind of wanted to have it in place first, but generally we need to do economy stuff, right? There's not any trading except at your fortress, uh, after world generation, whereas world generation has this whole giant industry and trading, uh, system set up. It's why when you go to a market in adventure mode, they can say like, you know, this is, I don't know, orca leather from far away coastal city, with a given name and it's like it, it is actually from there and it was actually produced in world generation and then actually traded uh to that society but then that stops after world generation because we haven't gotten to the economy stuff yet uh because the economy was kind of broken down we had it many many years ago in fort mode they could set up little shops and pay rent and be evicted from their apartments and stuff um but it just didn't work um well and uh, I think the modders still turn it on sometimes because it's all still compiled into the game. Um, but uh, so so there's that branch, and then there's all the whole kind of crime and punishment punishment branch of of the game, um, like like having uh, you know, having your adventurer properly you know prosecuted, thrown in jail, and thrown in the gibbet cage and pecked at and stuff. Um, all kinds of different aspects there. And then there's the, the army stuff, which we're doing a bit now before the magic to kind of tide people over, but this whole kind of villains and armies and uh, 
that sort of, we're, we're, we're going to do that for another like four or five months. Um, just working on that stuff before we disappear into Mythland for a couple of years. Uh, and, uh, so there's, there's, there's a lot and it's, it's kind of an, an ongoing list of, um, um, uh, features. Uh, there's a whole, like we just barely got started on the whole espionage thing right now. There are, there are agents that can have secret identities that collect information about artifacts in the different towns, but they don't collect any other information. Um, there's no like assassins or anything and other missing bits. Um, and uh, as you add more stuff to the game, it it increases the amount of stuff that you can add. It doesn't decrease it, right? It's like blowing up a balloon the surface area of the balloon increases. You can just, there's more avenues, right, uh, to to go down the more stuff you add to the game. So there's really no end in sight. We're not planning on ending, and we don't really have a solid retirement plan anyway. So we just treat it like we're, you know, musicians or whatever, you know, just like um, the, the, the uh, I don't know, the Rolling Stones or the Blues guys that just kind of, Go on until they're 80, 90 years. When you said the blues yeah. guys, all I could think of was the Blues Brothers. <laughs> yeah, I'd like BB King and. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the Blues Brothers kind of went on too, didn't they? They added movies, mm-hmm. movies beyond the original many, many years later. Um, I don't know what they're doing now. I think they're both still alive, right? Uh, no, no, only one of them's alive. Yeah, but no, then they had the 2001. No, but they. Yeah, they were, but they replaced him with like John Goodman or something, right? In two thousand or something. Yeah. God, I don't know. And uh, yeah, so that's yeah. Who knows? It's a very complicated life. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so for us, it's like we have no no plan to stop. I mean, I'm sure in our adultment we will be forced to stop at some point, and then God knows what will happen. Just probably get thrown in the ditch like every other American. Wow, dark. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know you're not one for playing favorites, but you have like a really notable memory of someone of watching someone play your game, and as a as a sort of follow up to that, whenever you're done with this one, is there any specific homages to your work that you follow? So yeah, the the um, like actually watching someone play a game is not something we really done we haven't watched a lot of channels i'm the only the only so i only i mean aside from play tested or something the only real memory i have of that at all is like we were with one of our friends and we were watching we were just like going through twitch for whatever and our friend typed into our fortress into twitch we're like ah you know because we don't really watch people play our game but we just saw this guy building his fortress and um uh, you know, we were in kind of a mood. We noticed that, um, you know, he was he was digging out his well, and uh, we we noticed that his well, or his channel, they would make a moat or something like that. I don't quite remember. Was really close to his whole underground area, and that he wasn't really noticing that it was going to intersect very badly and flood his entire fortress. So we had kind of the choice in the uh, in the chat where there weren't that many people. I think it might've just been us, but we weren't logged in by name or anything. We we're just anonymous in there. And, uh, we could, we could type in a warning or we could encourage him to dig and naturally encouraged him to dig. <laughs> and, 
and he flooded his fortress. We were like, oh, you know, we felt kind of bad about it because we were like, you know, is he going to start, you know, you know, you know, feeling sad or whatever, right? And um, so <laughs> what he did was he reached off screen and he pulled back this giant bong and took a hit and uh, just mellowed out and everything was okay. And I, that was, like my, uh, that was my, my experience with watching people play my game. Um, as for homages, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, that's, that's like, um, I mean, I like, I mean, Boat Murdered is a very funny traditional tale from, you know, what, 11 years ago now. Um, and then there's the whole, um, I don't know how to pronounce my own language, but the whole Mattel Remrit uh, Brave Mule one uh, that, that, uh, that Kevin Snow um, uh, and, and I don't remember who else, I don't know if Priscilla was involved with that or a list of other people, but um, they made this really, really cool one that was like, um, it had a very strong voice and uh, they, they had pictures and also, um, you know, videos uh, associated with that. Um, the ones with know, the customer they, are so neat. Yeah. And then they, you know, they, they've um, gone on to become, you know, game developers now. I mean, they, they contributed to where the water tastes like wine. They have their Mama Possum game and their Southern Monsters game. They have a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, and they're, you know, just running off doing video games now. And, um, you know, I, I met them at, at GDC a couple months ago and for the first time. And uh, then there's all of just the fan art, just as not even as, like you know, like playthrough artifacts, but just like the... Um, the fan art is great because especially when it's like of the forgotten, the random creatures, because it kind of reminds us when, when, when my brother and I were playing Starflight, like if you played the Starflight's a game from like 1986, right? And you just fly between like 800 procedural planets and collect life forms and stuff. You haven't played it. Yeah. Well, don't play it on, don't play it on the Sega. Uh, because the Sega, if I remember, does not have procedurally generated creatures, but the, the uh, the PC version has procedurally generated creatures, which is like one of the biggest inspirations for Dwarf Fortress, and it's the reason that we have those forgotten beasts at all, uh, is because it just has those that they just have this little paragraph. Like we we generate you know a, a little paragraph description of our critters as well, and that's like if you if you do a Google image search for like Dwarf Fortress Forgotten Beast, you'll see all kinds of drawings, all different art styles and stuff, and it's it's great because when when Zach, my brother, and I were kids we would draw our star starflight creatures. We had like a little captain's log, <laughs> these little tablets. And, you know, I was like uh, eight years old at the time. We had this captain's log and drawing, like we'd see a, um, you know, a life form and we'd dutifully, you know, draw the life form and write its characteristics and what coordinates it was found at on which planet. We'd just fill up notebooks with these drawings of little animals. So it was great to see uh, other people doing that because it's like, it feels like that's the, be the, the the main true way that we've kind of paid it forward or whatever is uh, is is by having people draw random creatures. That's actually really heartwarming and really neat. <laughs> so sort of winding down now, I was curious what your thoughts are on games that are sort of akin, like albeit a bit more accessible at the cost perhaps depths uh things like rim world or nomeria yeah that's all i mean it's all it's all because and uh the the people that made those games you know have all kind of mentioned dwarf fortress so 
I mean, in a in a in a kind of uh, cynical sense, it's all advertising, right? But uh, it's 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 um, in a in a kind of joyous sense. Those are all games that people um, you know play, and and it's like. Um, you know, I don't know what the uh, what the sort of genealogies are. There's Infiniminer led to Minecraft with like a touch of Dwarf Fortress, and maybe Minecraft had something to do with Terraria. I have no idea or where Terraria came from, right? But Terraria led to a whole bunch of other games and is still leading to games. Um, and then there's the whole sort of um, uh, Rimworld, Nomoria branch of it, and then uh, like Prison Architect is a uh, kind of a Dwarf Fortress inspired game, if I recollect uh, explicitly. Um, and there's this whole kind of just branch of games. And you talk to, you know, I've talked to met quite a few independent developers now that are kind of doing interesting games um, that have Dwarf Fortress roots. I mean, there's like Stone Hearth, and um, I think. Is it now called King Under the Mountain? I don't remember. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of, of interesting sort of uh, takes on the Dwarf Fortress. It's not, I mean, it's not a genre, and we didn't start it or anything. I mean, there are tons of colony builders before Dwarf Fortress, but it certainly did spark a lot of people's interest. And so, I don't know, it's just part of the ecosystem. Every game stands on its own as a, as a game that people like or not, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, no, we think it's, we think it's all cool. I mean, Dwarf Fortress is a very inaccessible game, and if people can get you know a similar experience with a game that they can actually play, that's better than uh, not, right? So, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience, or words you may have for aspiring devs? Uh, yeah, my um, guess. I mean, if you're if you're aspiring, then. Uh, Make sure to practice. Uh, practice is incredibly important. Don't overplan. Um, don't underplan, but you'll figure out what that means later. <laughs> it's important just to crash against every now and again. I think if you have free time for it, uh, but it is um, you know it is difficult to to find the time and uh, don't sell your house or anything. Uh, and you know you can you can you can practice when you have a day job. Uh, you know I did that. Uh, for quite a bit, although my job was not strenuous. I understand other people have much more strenuous jobs than I had when I was working. So, uh, um, but, you know, as long as you stick to it even a little bit, uh, you'll get better at it. That doesn't mean that you'll succeed. It just means that you'll get better at it, you'll make better games, and you'll, you know, at least have something you can enjoy for yourself. Uh, but also, I mean, I, other people have different thoughts about this. I'd say people should have a, you know, a public presence as soon as they can. Uh, you're only going to, especially with things like Patreon, right? I mean, people just kind of show up and, you know, one that at, at, at some point you're making $50 a day and then you're making, I mean, not a day, <laughs> that'd be nice, $50 a, um, a month. And then, you know, it turns into $75 a month. Um, people tend to stick around, uh, especially if you're working and publicly kind of sharing your stuff. So, uh, you know, keep working, keep sharing your stuff. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's different ways to get get paid for it. I don't, you know, have a lot of practice with working on on a game in secret and then kind of setting up a launch and then making the launch work. So it's like I wouldn't. 
if that's your model, I wouldn't take advice from me on that. There's a, there's there, you know, and there's, there's reasons people have to be secretive about things because people get scooped all the time. Uh, maybe it just happened with Baba as you, right? That whole kind of scam or whatever. I don't know what it was going on there, but someone copied the assets and created a copy of it or it happened with ridiculous fishing or whatever, right? You have to be careful um, with, depending on your, the type of game that you have and whether or not it's clonable and all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's, that's my my rambling take. You can get much more concise and better one, you know, online. There's a lot of great Twitter threads and other things that that you know if you if you follow people that are working. And I suppose lastly is, uh, are there any specific indie projects that you'd like to sort of highlight for the audience? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, got, I suppose so. I mean, I mentioned Caves of Cud. That's that's like if you if you have played Dwarf Fortress and not played Caves of Code, you should really check it out if you if you like um, um, role-playing games, because uh, it's not a colony manager, right? It's a role-playing game. But um, it's 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 very complex and interesting, and the stories that you get out of it are Dwarf Fortress stories, and the way that there's all these moving bits, and they have procedural villages, and procedural quests, and procedural histories, all the kinds of things that you like. Um, so I definitely... Um, Put that on the on the top of my uh, my kind of for dwarf fortress people my kind of recommended list um, uh, for that. Um, I haven't I haven't been following uh, too too closely what else uh, has kind of been going on. So I'll just leave it there. Okay, and. Uh... In that case, for you folks in the audience, if you'd like to go and give a peek at Dwarf Fortress, you can go to www.bay12games.com slash dwarves. Is there anywhere else that you'd like to direct people? Um, yeah, well, if you if you do like the game, we always appreciate people that, that pop into our Patreon or click the little PayPal button or whatever. Um, this is uh, the game is one run like 100% on contributions from from people you know aside from the 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 kind of token amount i make from my my book editing um uh so yeah that's uh, tanya short from kit fox game kit fox games who's now working on a boyfriend dungeon while we're talking about plugging things we edited a book together uh procedural generation and game design which was uh it's an interesting book um got lots of little procedural tidbits in it and we're working on another one on uh, procedural storytelling uh, that'll have a lot of interesting tidbits in it as well um, yeah so all kinds of cool stuff and you know hope people enjoy the game and uh, yeah keep in mind Dwarf Fortress is free so you can just download it don't have to pay there's also, cool when you do. <laughs> there's also a Twitter which is uh, Bay 12 Games I do believe yeah, yeah. The Twitter is Bay 12 Games. I mostly just tweet releases on there. And um, if you follow me, because Twitter like will push likes, right? It, I think it's what, like 60% of your likes, it also pushes onto your followers. Um, so you get a lot of cats, a lot of indie dev cats. I like people's indie dev cats when they post them. So it, it, it oh, comes through. Um, so that that's that's a, a, a either a side benefit or a reason not to follow me on Twitter um, is the is the kitty cats uh, and of course there's the forum if you go to um, bay12games.com you'll you'll eventually run into the forum and you can discuss uh, if you need help playing the game <laughs> which is a big thing you can go to the the dwarf fortress wiki 
uh, you, which you'll be able to find. Uh, you can go to the Door Fortress Forum, and people are very helpful there because they all had the problems too, right? It's not an easy game to get into. Questions, people will help you. We um, make sure that they're helpful. Uh, everybody is helpful and friendly when you ask questions. So, uh, and uh, yeah, and don't be afraid to ask questions. At so yeah, uh, anything else to add on there? Nah, everything's fine, right? Uh, it's cool and stuff. Yeah, things. No, I don't, in other words. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure actually having you on the show, especially considering there seems to be a whole lot on your plate with what you have planned for that game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I probably, now that I think about it, should have maybe picked your brain over tabletop stuff just because I'm sort of curious what your background oh, is. Oh, sure, in. sure. Yeah, no, I mean, are you still recording? I mean, we are. Okay, Apple, yeah. So, Apple I mean, no, you know, I mean, tabletop stuff, uh, let's go. Yeah, no, you want to talk about, you want to do the bonus segment on tabletop stuff? Let's do a bonus segment on tabletop stuff. All right, so what do you want to know? Just like what background? Your, your background in tabletop, if there's anything you're specifically diving into these days. Yeah, so so um, now tabletop I'm taking to to mean both like pen and paper RPGs and board games or whatever, right? Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. I'm not a fan of Warhammer 40k, but I would consider it tabletop. I'm yeah, very much like, a pen and paper and like Arkham Horror. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. So, so yeah, let's... So I, yeah, my... Your microphone uh, cut out there for a second. Okay, am I still here? Oh, you're still here. Okay, yeah. So, so my uh, my brother and I have Arkham Horror and a bunch of expansions for it. Uh, oh yeah. We always we always play too many expansions and lose. Um, kind of, but it's just more fun that way. We always lose. I think we've won it like one time the last ten times we played uh, it. If you do, uh, what the heck is it called? The one that has the silver ship. The silver mm -hmm. ship makes the game so much easier because <laughs> whenever you close a portal, you can immediately fling yourself into another one across the map. Oh wow. Yeah, super, super good for finishing yeah. stuff. <laughs> uh, so instead, we we die. <laughs> I mean, death is death is legit. Uh, that's usually. Oh yeah, have you actually won it by killing the the big guy at the end? Uh one one time, I believe. Uh, it's it's actually it's more common for us to get stuck fighting the big guy and losing. Of course, there's the whole one that just destroys the world, and you oh, don't yeah, even get to yeah. fight him, right? Just, I think that's uh, uh, Azathoth or something. Azathoth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, just we, like infinite, and you just die. Yeah, so we we stopped playing him because we never. <laughs> I think we won. I think we won one time, and then the rest of it has been like fighting and losing to the god but maybe we won that one time too we don't have we don't have a, a good track record of I victory super nasty for yeah that i'm a yeah. huge nerd by the way viewers and i love arkham horror i also love betrayal at house on the hill and mansions of madness <laughs> so i'm sort of curious if you're familiar with either of those i've heard of mansions of madness i haven't played it and i haven't even heard of it okay they're both fall in similar things, less time-consuming than Arkham Horror. Though I was used to playing it with like four <laughs> to five people, and when you have more people, it it goes on and on. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we haven't had a chance to play um, recently, or many board games recently. Uh, I mean, it's like we we tried to play one of those big war games. I don't even remember, what, but but uh, that was just like a World War Two game. But but Scamps was the tsunami and took out the entire Pacific Theater. <laughs> we decided that we couldn't uh, we couldn't play a game that lasted more than a day. Uh, which is why Arkham Horror is convenient because you can kind of get through that in four hours or something like that. Yeah, and 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 that's that's enough to like protect the table from the cat without without leaving it overnight or anything. And um, yeah, other than that, mostly we just read uh, role playing game books. Like I have, um, God, I don't know, it's got to be more than hundreds of them, uh, and read them all but I don't actually play. I haven't played a role-playing game for 20 years, uh, a pen and paper one. Oh. But, um, but we just read because it's all about systems and ways that people think about systems, right, and systematizing things. And, um, yeah, it's probably the last one we read a lot of was um, very kind of uh, intricate um, sort of year 1200 European uh, magic magic game like role-playing a wizard in in europe and and uh getting burned as a witch yeah it has a lot of complex about about all that kind of thing about spells and how they work and how fairies and demons and angels and um and purely magic things interact with each other in these weird systems um that's kind of informative for for dwarf fortress procedural magic systems will will be uh We'll be thinking about how to integrate things like that, uh, and it's good to see lots of magic systems. Um, you know, reading all the, but even 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 like um, you know the sci-fi ones like Rifts or whatever random sci-fi Shadowrun type stuff, uh, White Wolf stuff is floating around. Um, uh, it all it all kind of is informative in one way or another for for how people systematize things. But it's a very particular and odd habit rather than playing them. It's <laughs> fair enough. I've, there's a number of games that I've dived into the systems and been like, this is really interesting. I'd love to play it. And then realized I have no one I can play it with real life. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's part of my problem is finding time and people. I mean, I'm, I live out, I don't live in Seattle. And we really don't know anybody but the but Keppa from Rocket Cat Games out here, and you know he doesn't he doesn't do um, tabletop stuff either. So uh, yeah, so there's not a not a whole lot going on out here. You hear coyotes though, lots of coyotes, and you see raccoons and opossums, and um, see a black bear. See uh, all manner of critters out here. I mean, that'd make for some good ambience. Yeah, no, it's a cool place. You get to see the salmon run up the creeks and stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's a nice place. And uh, still affordable for the time being, although everything's becoming a suburb, so suburb of Seattle now, and uh, yeah, eventually we'll be, we'll be chased out further into the woods. Delightful gentrification. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's going to be places to go at some point. Some, something will break at some point if it hasn't already. feels kind of broken. But yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I suppose that sums up uh, this interview fairly well. Again, just thanks for providing me the time and popping on the show. Cool. Yeah, I know it's been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I like I like it when they start getting uh, 
getting away from the uh, the origin questions and and things that we've said before. Of course, you have to you have to set the uh, you know you have to frame things and set the tone. So of course, it's fine to ask about that stuff. And then we get into you know more interesting territory. So it's been cool because it's it's good to link it to the fans and have it have new stuff in it. And I'm sure I've I've definitely said things in this interview I haven't said before. So very good, very good. And also need to link it for the people who who haven't had the huge familiarity towards Dwarf Fortress. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like there's there's uh, you have to start somewhere. Some some dwarf fortress, fortress. Uh, yeah. Everybody, yeah. Everybody learns learns things all the time. So you made it to the end of this episode. First off, thanks for tuning in. Your patronage is enjoyed. It would be a great favor to us if you would review the podcast and let us know your feelings on the final product. Otherwise, if you're curious for more of our content, you can check out our YouTube page at www.youtube.com slash capital C slash crit hit. We also do have a Twitch page over at twitchtv.arlian. And again, you can always check out the Discord community to touch base with us and see if we might be able to help you satisfy your curiosity about your favorite developers and favorite games. Anyways, this was Arlene, and I hope you folks have a good day.